1: Welcome to Fiction Predictions from Mashable. I'm Sam. And I'm Nick.
2: Alright Sam, so I've got a pretty special episode for you this week.
1: Well, every episode of Fiction Predictions is pretty special.
2: Okay, well this is a really really special episode. Guess who I interviewed last week?
1: Well, you've dropped several hints and I think I probably, I probably do know, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you your, your moment anyway to tell me.
2: Thank you very much. So (laughs) last week I interviewed Neil Gaiman and the entire cast of Good Omens. You are just, you're like, you're like the interview machine. You're just, you're just an unstoppable interviewing force. Well, when you were out, out there in sunny Somerset getting married and, and saying your <laughs> vows, I was, a, I, was, I was here in London grinding. Oh, you're just, you are an inspiration. Right, so here's what we're going to do this episode.
0: Good Omens. Being a narrative of certain events occurring in the last 11 years of human history.
2: So, Good Omens is a book that was written by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett 30 years ago.
3: Cheers. To the world. To the world.
2: What really fascinated me about this book is its satirical foresight. It's what makes it so timeless and it's also what makes the release of the TV show today so apt and relevant. Good Omens was written by two of the greatest and funniest writers of our time, and it was written at a pretty historical moment, a moment of denuclearization, a moment political scientists and philosophers and politicians and diplomats were using as a blueprint to dream up a new plan for a new international community. And Gaiman and Pratchett questioned this idealism, they question our gullible desires to show that actually, plans never really seem to work out the way that they're intended to.
3: You you keep talking about the great plan.
0: fail, maybe you should just keep your mouth shut. One thing I'm not clear on,
3: is that the ineffable
0: plan?
2: And today we're living in a world of quicksand and chaos from climate change to political instability in unexpected places like dormant volcanoes becoming active again. And we've become obsessed with the concept of the apocalypse.
1: The great plan, it is written, there shall be a world and it shall last for 6,000 years and ended fire and flame. Yes, yes, that, that sounds like the great plan. Just wondering, is that the ineffable plan as well?
2: It's taken over our culture and, to some extent, the identity of the millennial generation. You know, the fear of time running out to save the planet. So, in part one of this episode, I talked to Neil about this idea of the impending crisis and how something that was written three decades ago anticipated quite a few of the details about the directionless chaos we find ourselves in today.
1: You don't know. Yeah. Well, It'd be a pity if you thought you were doing what the Great Plan said, but you were actually going directly against... God's ineffable plan.
2: Then, in part two, I'll take a step further to talk to you about the role children in Good Omens play, in a world run by out-of-touch bureaucrats.
0: You're going to burn all this away. Why? Because some adults muck things up. That's a reason to fix it, not destroy it.
2: The narrative prepares us for a biblical apocalypse, where heaven and hell are portrayed as inhabiting the same skyscraper. Heaven has the best offices at the top, and hell, the leaky basement. It's a world of absolute division and polarization.
1: I am an angel, you are a demon, we're hereditary enemies. Get thee behind me, foul fiend, after you.
2: And it's the children who are the bearers of common sense. Today, it holds a particular resonance to Greta Thunberg and an entire generation of teenagers that she's inspired across the world to stand up to world leaders and demand answers about how we're all gonna solve the problem of climate change. Together here today, we we share a common goal. We want a future. Is that too much to ask for? Okay, so our story starts with Neil and I sitting on a couch here in Soho talking about the impending doom of the human race.
1: That is the way all good stories should
3: start. I'm Neil Gaiman, and uh, I wrote Good Omens, the novel with Terry Pratchett, exactly 30 years ago. And when we got to the end of the first draft, we looked at the world and everybody was getting along really well and an armageddon an apocalypse an end of time seemed a very very long way away you know the berlin wall had just come down
2: the end of the cold war was sort of being finalized it was a time when the narrative in the media was one of progress and peace and celebration
3: general secretary gorbachev if you seek peace
2: Uh, It was a time when people from East Berlin were flooding into West Berlin. It was a time when, you know, the Iron Curtain was falling down and democracy was being introduced in the former Soviet Union. It was a time of hope. And it was a time when, you know, political scientists and mass, both um, in America and in Europe, were writing about uh, the first time that the world was no longer divided between a binary of, you know, evil and good or between democracy and communism or capitalism and socialism. Um, It was the first time that basically nuclear war didn't seem so imminent.
0: Mr. Gorbachev, teared down this wall.
1: Okay.
2: And Good Omens plays with that um, reality in a very interesting way. And one of the first things that Neil said when we talked is, it was a time when it was almost hard to convince people that an apocalypse could be coming because everybody seemed to get along so well that to write a book about an impending apocalypse seemed almost unnatural because it seemed somewhat unbelievable.
3: We talked about this and then one or other of us went in and wrote some lines where actually a newsreader says how unlikely it is that there's such an increase in world tension at a time when everyone's getting along so well. I wish that were true today. The the peculiarity of making Good Omens now, 30 years later, it feels more apt than it did then. Somebody said to me, so what did you have to update in the way of Armageddon? And, and it's like, nothing. I, all of the issues that we were talking about 30 years ago that may have felt a little bit fringy then, rainforests, climate change, whales and increase in in international tension. And the idea that sorting things out with war is a really bad idea because people get killed. That stuff is just as fresh and rather more important than it was then, I think, because we've come 30 years down the road and haven't fixed anything.
2: In the last 30 years, popular culture has completely been engulfed with the sensation of an impending doom. And, you know, as part of the millennial generation, this is one of the basic tenets of our existential crisis, that the world would not be able to survive by the time we're supposed to have kids of our own. Neil spoke to me at length about why the TV adaptation of Good Omens is out right now. In this moment of global panic and hunger for dystopian entertainment, he finds it relevant because the book got the trajectory right, but he also talks about the role Terry Pratchett had too.
3: Well, I was going to say that's the biggest difference for me writing the book and writing the script was Terry Pratchett. When I wrote the book, if I got stuck, I'd send what I'd done over to Terry Pratchett because this was a long time ago. I would record it onto floppy disk, put it in an envelope and post it off to Terry. And if I got stuck, I'd call Terry. If I did something clever, I'd call Terry. Every day, Terry and I would talk for maybe an hour or two, plotting the book throwing jokes at each other going what about this what about that
2: it was basically Terry Pratchett's dying wish for this to be turned into a TV show
3: I started it the week after Terry's funeral um, when nothing seemed very funny and when I'd get stuck I would miss Terry when I do something clever and I'd fin- figure something out and I- I'd go oh that's how I would miss Terry because I'd want to ring him up and say okay I think it oh you're not there
1: so he was really driven to, to begin work on it by, by that yeah. happening. And okay. the thing that I find most bizarre and interesting
2: out of all this is neither Neil or Terry could have anticipated back in 1989
3: how right they would be today. You know, I get asked a lot about my fiction. You know, it's, it's like with Sandman, how does it feel so contemporary? It's a 30-year-old graphic novel, and yet your attitudes to, you know, LGBT, people do all of these social issues. This is incredibly contemporary or, or, you know, good omens where people are saying, how did you get it so right 30 years ago that it feels more contemporary now? And I, I, I point to the one line in the book, which feels dated, which is the one that Terry and I inserted at some point between the first and the second draft. Where a newsreader says, you know, this this increase in international tensions seems very unlikely right now because everyone's getting along so well. And that line does feel dated and doesn't feel like it's about now. Everything else, whether it's pollution, whether it's... um, whatever the rainforest, it all feels incredibly relevant. And now
2: the most important, I guess, relationship for the podcast is the sense of writing a book at a time where everything seemed fine and dandy and everybody seemed to get along and writing a book about the apocalypse and then adapting a TV show at a time when the whole world seems completely unsure about how to get out of the current mess that we're in.
1: Yeah. Well, the, the question that's immediately like popped into my head is it, the way you described it then, it makes it sound like a kind of almost a bit of a fluke, like an accidental prediction almost. But I guess what I'm interested in and hopefully what we'll dig into over the course of the interviews is, was it actually an accidental prediction or it is, did they predict things because of, I don't know, some kind of knowledge or perhaps some kind of understanding of human nature? Well.
2: Uh, fire away, guys. It's actually funny that you should ask that because it's something that kept popping up. Who's
3: excited? I
2: am. When I was uh, chatting to the cast about Good Omens,
3: I hope that's what people take away from the from the whole story. I think that's definitely what Neil and Terry in t- intended.
2: So that's John Hamm, who plays the rather irritable and very condescending archangel Gabriel in Good Omens.
3: You know, they wrote this in a post-Cold War world where. Everything was finally fixed. We were at peace. There was no cold war. We were gonna blow each other up. It was, all, it was all fine. It was all perfect. What could go wrong? <laughs> it's kind of that thing. Like, we're always gonna fuck it up. That's what we do. We're people, we fuck it up. But learning and, and the process is the, is the fun part. I
2: think. And it was also a theme that I kept coming back to during my conversation with Michael Sheen and David Tennant.
3: I would pontificate
1: about how evil always a, is the seed of its own destruction. Or and something. I'd tell you to get over yourself. Yeah, exactly. And There'd that. be a lot of that.
2: Who played the two main characters, an angel called Aziraphale and a demon called Crowley.
0: They do have the, the flavor of, of a, a couple who've been married for a very long time.
2: So that's David...
0: We use fiction to cooperate and to tell stories to each other, to understand our very existence and to make sense of the nature of what it is to be human beings within a cooperating society. So, I suppose. Um, you know, this, this particular fiction suddenly feels that you're talking about the end of days. I, You can almost smell them. So uh, I, I, I guess it's impossible to ignore
1: that when mm-hmm. you're, you know, introducing this to the audience. And, and neither should you. And one of the things that writers can do is invent the possible.
2: And that's Michael.
1: We're in that area that... Ursula K. Le Guin wrote about, or Philip K. Dick wrote about, or whoever it might be, and and this should sound warning bells, mm. um, because they've been there in a in a in a fictional way. We at least have some kind of signposts to know, to know to contextualise where we are, whether it's for good or or ill. Right. And um, we're certainly in areas at the moment that feel kind of new and different and quite <laughs> scary. And so the people who have gone into you know looked into those areas like Orwell did with 84 or something like Handmaid's Tale, I think that's inevitably we kind of need reference points for where where we're at.
2: Speaking of George Orwell and Margaret Atwood, two writers we have covered on the pod, I went back to Neil with this question about fiction sometimes being treated as prophecy, very much like Agnes Nutter's prophecies in The Good Omens.
0: Prophecy 2214. In December 1980,
1: an apple will arise no man can eat. Invest thy money in Master Job's machine, and good fortune will tend thy days. (gasps) I mean, this is (laughs) Balderdash.
2: You know, cryptic messages that are dusted off occasionally, only to be held up as a mirror to reality. And there's this sense that we keep coming back to. It's almost as if we sometimes are bound by the fictional stories we tell about ourselves. And then we use them to try to explain what is going on today.
3: I think good dystopic fiction is not prediction, does not want to be prediction, would love not to be prediction. But I think good dystopic fiction is the equivalent of putting up a sign that says, you know, there's there's quicksand here. If you, if you go walking in here, you will probably drown. Go around here. Mm. And it's, it's, it's putting, putting danger signals on our map so that we don't walk into the quicksand. I do think that sometimes, you know, dystopic fiction can come back into the light when we find ourselves heading back into those same swamps. Insert more
2: or less any 1984 quote here.
3: Because those are the quicksands that we are heading back into, a world in which uh, peace is war and truth is lies and in which the government is telling you what to think. And the trouble is now it's not even the government. If they were efficiently telling you what to think, that would be one thing, but it's the idea that, that every, there, there is a flatness to information. The joy of the internet, the liberation of the internet, is the removal of gatekeepers. Uh, The idea that gatekeepers have now, they've gone, they've left the gates, the gates are wide open, anybody can put anything up, and you can put a book that you've written up on the internet, and with the right combination of luck, and good circumstances, and maybe good writing, and good storytelling... It can turn into Fifty Shades of Grey or whatever the latest internet bestseller is. The Removal of the Gatekeepers.
2: It's a prominent theme in Good Omens, where the world is headed towards the end and there's no one in the driving seat. Everyone in charge is, as Neil
3: says, fucking nuts. You can, you can sit in your room and decide that climate change uh, was invented to stop American science by the Chinese or by Jews or by ducks ducks what about ducks now what water slides off just drive the car please and you can put that out into the world and it has the same amount of credibility that a statement in New Scientist would have on climate change. You know, I I worked on a newspaper briefly. You learned to recognise the home-produced books with their random capital letters, um, the letters from mad people with flat-earthy theories whatever, the fact that now we have serious flat earthers um, as far as I'm concerned is just just, yeah, absolutely we do because all information is equal when perceived because it comes in on the same screen. From the bottom up as well with no particular altar. Yeah, because there are no gatekeepers. There's nobody there telling you that by the way you know, this article about evil Jewish ducks being responsible for climate change. That's just... Nonsense. Yeah, that's nonsense. And you have, and you get the weirdness of things like Snopes, which was a fantastic website just dedicated to pointing out, yeah, this is true, this isn't true, this is true, this isn't true. And then suddenly you get the extreme right wing going, ah yes, Snopes is actually a co-intel pro-CIA thing to discredit the truth. Which is Actually brings me to another
2: point, uh, a sort of a caveat, really. It concerns a 1996 interview between Terry Pratchett and Bill Gates. A few days ago, a tweet by Mark Burroughs, who's writing a biography of Pratchett, went viral. It included a screenshot from that interview. And in it, Pratchett kind of predicts what will happen to the internet and what Neil refers to as the removal of the gatekeepers
1: such a cool interview Terry Pratchett interviewing Bill Gates.
2: Here's the quote that burroughs tweeted that went viral. Uh at the time of recording I think it has over 11,000 retweets. So this is what Terry says to to Bill Gates. Let's say I call myself the Institute for Something or Other and I decide to promote a spurious treaty saying that the Jews were entirely responsible for the Second World War and the Holocaust didn't happen. It goes out there on the internet and is available on the same terms as any piece of historical research which has undergone peer review and so on. There's a kind of parody of esteem of information on the net. It's all there. There's no way of finding out whether this stuff has any bottom to it or whether someone has just made it up.
1: Oh, Terry. He's hit the nail on the head there, hasn't he?
2: Yeah, I mean, like... It's not the first time Pratchett, like in his This series, has one novel. um, I think it's called The Truth, which sort of plays with this idea of fake news and disinformation. Because I think Terry also has a little bit of a background in journalism. I think that's where he started off um, as a writer. And um, he's always sort of had this sensation that, you know, truth is such a sort of like plastic and flimsy concept and one that is so easily manipulated. And in 1996... And to Bill Gates, right?
1: Yeah, that's uh, that sounds like an absolutely fascinating, fascinating conversation. I would have loved to have been in the room. What do you think Bill Gates responded to that? Well, do you want a clue? Go on.
2: So in this conversation, Terry Pratchett is a cynical realist, whereas Bill Gates in 1995 he still seems like an idealist technocrat. So what do you think his response is?
1: So he's. I'm guessing from from what you said that he's he's disagreeing and he's saying, oh, it won't, it won't be like that. Yes. Do you want
2: to hear the, the full quote? I certainly do. Electronics gives us a way of classifying things. You will have authorities on the net, and because an article is contained in their index, it will mean something. The whole way that you can check somebody's reputation will be so much more sophisticated on the net than it is in print.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? Because Bill... <laughs> I found, sorry, I don't know why I'm calling him casually calling him Bill, as if we're friends. Billy. <laughs> yeah. No, but it's interesting, because he's kind of like, I can see why he said that, and to an extent, he's kind of right. Like, obviously, you know, websites, everything, uh, you know where you're getting your information from. But I guess the problem comes in, and the reason that Terry Pratchett's prediction is actually correct, is that things, you know, social media, obviously, is one of the big... The big difference makers there things spread so fast and people don't necessarily you know they won't necessarily check a source when they're casually browsing facebook they'll just they'll see a headline maybe even and already the the news is there and they've shared it and sort of passed it on in that kind of chain of whispers so you know whether an article's from the bbc or from you know a, a some random guy's blog is not always necessarily the top of their minds when they're just browsing their feed. That's actually very funny because Burroughs, the
2: biographer of Pratchett, he was interviewed about his viral tweet. Um, I think it was by The Guardian. And he he made a very interesting point about it because I also thought like when he tweeted that, because it's a screenshot from the actual print interview in, in GQ with the quote attributed to Terry Pratchett. And I thought to myself like, is that... 100% One hundred percent accurate. Did Terry really say that? Is that how? Like, do you, how do we definitely know that that's him? Because it's just you can just see the quote right from 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 um from a page. You oh don't yeah, miss- sure. And this is what he said. So he told The Guardian that, ironically, hardly anyone has asked if a quote about the dangers of spreading fake news on the internet is actually real. (laughs) It's literally just a photo from an article in an old magazine. I could could easily have faked it. Everyone's taken my word for it. It is real. But I thought that it was very interesting. Here's Terry saying, don't take everything online at face value. And literally thousands of people responding by going, Terry's so clever. Retweet Right. um, So I think we're ready to move on to part two of this episode. So in part one, we talked about the anticipation of a global crisis at a historic moment of peace. And we also talked about prescribing our current obsession with dystopian and apocalyptic tales. Now it's time to talk about the solution Gaiman and Pratchett offer to this senseless world where we have to wonder whether there's anyone at the driving seat at all. In Good Omens, kids play a critical role in questioning the judgments and motivations of pencil-pushing adults. They also fulfill the role as bearers of common sense and guardians of the planet. You have Adam, the son of Satan, and his friends, defying the status quo at every turn and making a choice about the future they want to live.
0: My mum says that war is just masculine imperialism, executed on a global stage. (laughs) A little girl! I believe in peace.
2: This is really relevant to the world today because
0: I believe in a clean world
2: Well, of Greta Thunberg, you know, the 16-year-old climate change activist who, over the past few months, has met with world leaders and demanded answers Did you hear me? Yes Is my English
1: okay? Yes I'm beginning to wonder
2: <laughs> about how we're gonna face one of the biggest challenges in human history it's a watershed moment about who's allowed to ask questions on the world stage and it's also a watershed moment about the young generation fighting for their right to a future many of you appear concerned that we are wasting valuable lesson time but I assure you we will go back to school the moment you start listening to the science and give us a future is that really too much to ask This is the part where Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett reserve for hope in their novel. And that's where we're going to finish off our conversation today.
3: What I liked about writing Good Omens with Terry Pratchett, what I liked about writing the TV version alone, what I liked about making it, was going back over and over to the idea that the great tragedies and the great triumphs of humanity are both caused by the same thing and it's not by people being fundamentally evil and it's not by people being fundamentally good it's by because people are fundamentally people and that i like to think gives us something to hope for if there is a good omen it is the fact that fundamentally people are people fundamentally more people are kind than monstrous um people can be led astray They can be led astray by being told lies. They can be led astray by monstrous governments. I I remember talking to a a girl who'd escaped from North Korea, literally escaped. Um, And she was talking about the fact that in, in North Korea, there is no word for freedom. They didn't have a word for that concept. And they didn't really have that concept. It wasn't a concept. So you needed to get the concept of, uh, to realize that you didn't have this thing. But I think in the long term, as long as we can look after the planet and not poison it completely, there is always fundamentally hope. And you know, I wrote Sandman. Sandman is all about the idea that, you know, at the end of everything, no matter how dark it gets, there's still hope yeah and
2: one, one more thing um, that I thought was very very interesting is throughout um, good omens you have Adam who's the son of, of Satan uh, the Antichrist and his friends and throughout the story they they constantly question um, you know the resolve and the reasoning that all of these adults around them, have and and are trying to convince them and particularly when it comes to the end of the world it's not a question of the kids being good or being evil they just treat this whole thing as as sort of nonsensical and there's a very strong sort of climate change aspect to it that kids are living in a world that adults are unnecessarily using up and, and you know poisoning um, without very much thought about why they're doing it, and without very much thought for the future generations, and it's there's there's this. Um, I kept I kept thinking about Greta Thunberg, who's basically been saying that in in so much words for the past one year. You know, saying that if you're not gonna do it, then I guess we have to do it, even though you know our job is to go to school and be kids and stuff. But we don't have a future, and it's this it's this sensation that now things have gotten so desperate and so scary um, that adults have just sort of like they've they've become so enclosed in their microcosms that they refuse to see the full picture and now it's up to basically kids right to save the world
1: yeah and i mean i guess there's also that like slightly horrible kind of sense that is not probably not going to affect them directly as much potentially and it's very, you know, it's easy when, when something is not necessarily right in front of your face on a kind of day to day basis, it's easy to sort of like for people to just push it to one side and pass the responsibility on. Whereas uh yeah, I guess for, for the younger generations it's it's obviously more yeah, a bit more desperate. Well, what do you think about the episode? Well, first of all, I think the specific examples you selected were pretty compelling. For example, you mentioned about climate change, for instance, and that kind of parallel uh, between the story and, and the present day and this idea of a young generation of activists. That detail is quite compelling. But in general, I mean, I feel like this story works best... As an overall, like as a just just the overall, the full package, you know. It just I keep coming back to some of the things uh, that Neil picked up on and all of the the cast picked up on, really. And it was just this idea of how society works and how human beings work, and what John Ham said about uh, y- you know, like when he was saying well, we're idiots, we don't learn from our mistakes. I think all of those things they pointed to, and just really the the sort of Impressive depiction of human nature is what makes this one stand out to me the most.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that. I also think uh, it's just the timeliness of all of this, very similar to the 1984 episode where the book was written in such a magnitudinal time of recent history. You know, one of the very few times where you had sort of you assumed that you had grown-ups at the wheel you know you had you, you you were assuming that the leaders of western countries and the leader the leaders of you know Ru- uh, the russian federation were sitting down and they were having legitimate conversations about what to do about you know um, denuclearization about ending the arms race about all these things that people were worried about for 45 years and it seemed a the time with the berlin wall falling down that it would be a time of peace and progress and finally will be at the end of this sort of, you know, conflict that's been going on for so many decades, right? And Neil Gaiman and and Terry Pratchett are satirizing this idea, right? That That you can have a perpetual stable period of politicians and leaders and people making the right rational decisions. Because what is at the center of good omens is you're headed towards the apocalypse and there's nobody at the wheel. And what we are faced with in more or less for the last 10 years is, you know, crisis after crisis, um, it seems that we don't have any answers to to these new problems that we're facing, whether it's, you know, the things that led to Donald Trump's elections, the things that, that led to Brexit, um, the way that, you know, all, all the new information coming out about climate change and, and our effect on the planet and the lack of anyone really coming up and stepping up until really, you know, uh, people like Greta Thunberg started sounding the alarm bells, right? It's Mm. this idea of just when everybody thought that we were going down the line of progress and and prosperity 30 years down the road, we could not have been further away from that initial anticipation
1: yeah that was obviously one of the ideas that they had at the back of their back of their heads and that's probably one of the reasons that the book has ended up being so kind of timeless because it's yeah it's ultimately about human nature complicated human nature and people making the same mistakes at at the end of the day
0: yeah
2: i think that's right um i have one final i guess little uh, Easter egg that I'd like to mention. And it's, uh, I guess it will help us lead into the new, uh, into our 10th episode. In the last episode of Good Omens, one of the demons is played by the guest that we're going to have next, next week.
1: That is a nice, that's a nice little link up, isn't it?
2: Yeah. Uh, I saw, I saw Neil, uh, post a a photo on Twitter of him and Andy Hamilton, who's going to be one of two guests. Next week,
1: I'm looking uh, forward to next week's episode. Yeah, it's did gonna you, be you, you good. Plan, you, did you plan it this way? This this little link?
2: No, no. But I, I think it's an interesting link, and I thought that I should I should probably mention it. But yeah, so. Uh, thanks so much guys uh, as as always thanks so much for listening
1: yeah thanks so much for tuning in guys um as always please you know please do leave a rating and or a review on your preferred podcast platform we yeah we really appreciate it it really helps us out and uh yeah please do feel free to have a chat to us on twitter if you want i'm um i'm at sam Hasom and go on nick
2: it's nikolai underscore nikolov
1: Nikolai underscore Nikolov. And the uh, podcast has a Twitter account too, which is at predictions underscore pod. So, yeah, if you have any suggestions for upcoming fiction predictions or if you want to discuss any of the episodes, then please do drop us a tweet.
2: All right, guys. Bye.
1: Bye. Fiction Predictions. Fiction Predictions is a mashable podcast created by Sam Hasem and Nikolai Nikolov. The theme song was composed by Casberg. the artwork was designed by Bob Al Green, and this episode was edited by Nick.
0: Selling a little? Or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage,